Okay, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. On your notes today, the, the date at the top is wrong. You'll see that. I intended to preach this message earlier in the month, and then came the snow. So, Matthew 23. We have been working through the book of Matthew, and there are times that we take a little slower, we slow things down, Um, there are times that we move a little faster depending on the content that we're in. Um, Probably more my heart than any, the Lord had me slow down on this part, Uh, the woes to the Pharisees. And so I want to to read and for you all to follow along with me. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 22. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is is your word to your people, to the church, to me. Give us ears to hear it today. Give us hearts that desire to apply it as well. In your name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we looked in detail at how Jesus was defining hypocrisy. A topic every one of us just loves to to talk about, right? Uh, Hypocrisy. Not only, though, did we see in the hearts of the religious leaders this hypocrisy that Jesus was talking about, but I hope and I pray that the Spirit is giving us eyes to see this in ourselves as well. When we read Scripture with the mind of Christ, we see that Jesus' remedy for hypocrisy is humility. That's what he taught. Hypocrisy, the remedy, is humility. So if you've evaluated yourself, if God has given you grace to be able to look inward here as we've gone through this, or even today as we're continuing through it, and you say, man, there are things in my life that aren't adding up. How do I fix this? Humility. Go back and look. These are the first of the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes, but Jesus has been defining hypocrisy, what it is, and how to fix it. 
And that's to humble ourselves before the God in heaven, before the king. So this is an interesting part of the text because now Jesus transitions between talking about the Pharisees, talking to them. Now he's looking them dead in the face and he's condemning them. Woes to you, he says. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this at all in the time that we've studied this, but you know, as, as studying through this the last few weeks, I just had to continue asking myself this question. Why was Jesus so harsh on these guys? Uh, I, I mean, he did not have a kind word to say here. Why was he so harsh on them when they were so dedicated and sincere? This question is so relevant today. It's so relevant today. And so if, if you phrased it just a bit different, it might sound like this. How can God be mad at people who are so sincere in what they believe? Or, well, none of us have it all figured out. So why would God be so harsh and uncaring when people get it just a little bit wrong? How could God send someone to hell that is so sincere about what they believe? Eventually, this kind of thinking will say that it doesn't really even matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in believing it. Eventually, that's where that lands. That's where that heads. Or it's said like this, all religion leads to the same place. Everybody's belief system, as long as they believe in something, will end us all at the top in the end. Brothers and sisters, this is a dangerous mindset that goes against teach, the teaching of the Bible. The Bible does not see, say all roads lead to God in the end. The Bible is much more direct. One way, one gate, one door. Not everyone, one, as we're going to talk about. Paul addressed this in the book of Romans. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 10, he was addressing this kind of thinking. The, the thinking that, well, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, that's what counts. So in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Rome. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The trouble with the Jews here was not that they lacked sincerity, was not that they lacked zeal, right? Paul says this, but rather that they staked their eternity on it. The problem was that they they put their trust and their hope in their sincerity, in their zeal, not because they lacked dedication. They put their trust in the wrong place. And if they were excited about it, of course it had to be right, they thought. They had zeal for God, Paul says, but not according to what? To Not according to knowledge. 
The conflict then was between zeal and knowledge, between sincerity, kids, between sincerity, being sincere, and actually what's true. The problem was between sincerity and truth. And this is a big issue that we see today. People confuse sincerity with truth. And I would even go so far as to say that many people today equate sincerity with truth. If you're sincere about it, if you believe it with all your heart, then you're right. And who am I to tell you that you're wrong if you believe it that much? This is the problem. Our society is telling us that truth is negotiable. It's not absolute. It's negotiable. And saying that something is absolute actually now makes you small-minded or a fundamentalist or some whacked-out crazy Christian. To say that something is absolutely true is unfounded today. In fact, there are religions and groups of people who pride themselves in thinking that there are no absolutes. Everything is changing, which is baffling to me. It's become, but it's possible to be sincere and zealous about something and for it to still be wrong. Jason mentioned the airplanes. Those people believed very sincerely in what they were doing. And yet there's not a person here that would agree that it was right. Sincerity today is exalted. And it's become almost like this litmus test for whether you can be trusted or not. It's almost like if you believe that something is real and and you're sincere and there's absolute truth there then you can't be trusted. But this is a false standard. The standard is not how zealous you are, how much you believe it. Sincerity is not the benchmark for what makes a person well-adjusted or a society good. Sincerity is not the benchmark for that. Think about it this way. If, if I get up in the middle of the night with a stomach ache. You know, I'm kind of in this sleepless, sleepy stupor, and I'm rummaging around in the medicine cabinet, and I grab, instead of Pepto-Bismol, I grab um, rubbing alcohol, and I take a big swig of that. Um, It's not going to fix my problem, is it? It's probably going to make it worse. Um, I'm going to have some trouble the rest of that evening. It's not going to be pleasant. I may have been sincere in thinking what I had was going to fix my stomach problem, and yet I made it worse because the medicine was wrong. Or think about it this way. Um, If you're on the top of a tall building with someone and they say, hey, I really think that I can fly today. I'm going to jump off the building, float to the ground like a bird, and just land really, you know, really gracefully on the sidewalk. And you say, hang on a second. You can't fly. No, no, I really can. I believe it. I believe that I can. I can fly. No, you cannot fly. It doesn't matter. Well, if they believe it enough, even though it's wrong, they may jump off and you know the outcome. Gravity, (laughs) gravity catches up with people. Um, 
It doesn't matter how strongly that person believed they could fly. The truth of the matter was, they couldn't. So, boys and girls, this is one of the questions you were asked to listen for. Belief, what you believe, must be rooted in truth. What you say is right, what you say you believe, what you stake your life on, has to be rooted in truth. And as Christians, we say that God's Word is the ultimate source of truth because it's breathed out by God Himself. Okay? I think we all agree there. Scripture is absolutely essential to the believer's everyday life. In God... And in His Word, we find, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, we find all that is necessary for life and godliness in His Word. So belief must be rooted in truth. Being dedicated and sincere in your belief is right and good as long as it's rooted in truth. And ultimately, this, I think, was the problem with the religious leaders here in Jesus. They were really sincere about sticking to the letter of the law, but their belief was not rooted in the truth. They had a lot of the correct information, but their hearts wasn't their hearts were not ruled by humility. Their hearts were ruled by pride. Thus their need for humility, thus our need for humility. I dare not ask us to raise our hands on if we have a problem with pride. Because hands would go up all over the place and there'd be a hand up here on the podium. We know it. What's the answer? To be humbled before God. The Pharisees' religion was not true worship of God either because it was rooted in a prideful heart. Think back to chapter 5 of this book, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He had emphasized the true intent of the law over the letter of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees, unfortunately, were emphasizing the letter of the law and were completely missing its spirit. You guys understand what I'm talking about when I say the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. I'm not talking about a gray area here necessarily, but I'm talking about what the Pharisees were missing. And and I pray, oh God, that he would not let us miss it too that he would capture our minds and our hearts this morning. Now, if you paid close attention, I want you to look back at Matthew chapter 23. I want you to look. Many of your modern translations are actually missing something. It's missing verse 14. Okay? <clears throat> there, There is no... If you have a King James, maybe a new King James, I think it's there. But on many of our modern translations, there's no verse 14. So what is going on? Okay, this is not the subject matter of all of today's sermon, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But uh, I think it's important to discuss where verse 14 went. All right. Um, if you look back, and I had to do a lot of digging for this, but if you look back, some of the early earliest manuscripts that we had of the book of Matthew, they didn't have verse 13 in here. They didn't have the words here. And if even the, the, your Bibles that probably have no verse 14, if you look down at some of the footnotes, it'll tell you what it could have been. Um, most of our earliest manuscripts, they didn't have this verse here. It was likely 
later added on by a scribe who was looking across the Gospels and noticed that it was missing in Matthew and thought, well, there needs to be some consistency here. Let's put it in. Okay? The content of this verse, though, I want to just make mention of, is readily found in two other Gospels. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 47. And go ahead and flip over to Mark. It's here in Mark chapter 12, verse 40. So it's not that our modern translations are attempting to hide this verse at all. It's just a matter of if if this was really written um, by Matthew in this way. And so Mark chapter 12, verse 40, this is what is missing in verse 14 in Matthew 23. So Mark 12, verse 40, whoever devour, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive their greater condemnation. And this is in reference to the Pharisees. If you just kind of skip back a couple verses, um, the scribes, and the Pharisees are talking about how they want the best seats in the synagogue and for people to see them and the place of honor at feasts. And it says that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You could see in all of our study of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy that's there, you can see how this would apply to them as well. And so the question that I want to answer, again, is not whether... It should be here or not, but uh, what, what did Matthew orig- originally put here? Um, there's The truth is that God inspired biblical authors with the words to write, but he used their personalities in order to write them that way. That's why we have four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and every one of them is a little bit different. Some of them a lot different because they were all written from a different perspective. You've heard it put this way. If you see something happen, you see it from your perspective, but someone from the other side saw a different perspective. Neither of you was necessarily right or wrong. You just saw it differently. And so the Gospels are written from four different perspectives, all giving us a more full understanding of Jesus' life and his ministry. So the bottom line here is not were these words inspired or not, why they were included or weren't they. The bottom line is that there's no question that Jesus said these words. Mark picks it up. Luke picks it up. So again, that's not the main concern of our time today, but I want us to be perfectly clear that Jesus said these words. Whether Matthew recorded them here in 23 or not is debatable. But that's more or less irrelevant to, to what we're talking about today. Now, if you're interested in finding and researching a little bit more, there's a, a Christian apologetics and research ministry that you can find online, and they have a really neat article written up about this. Again, that's Christian apologetics and research ministry. And you can look up Matthew 23:14, and that might be of help to you. So in verse 13, again, Jesus makes that transition from talking about the Pharisees and the scribes to talking to them. Now think about, think about a, maybe a tense conversation that you've had with someone before. What do you call it when, uh, let's just say that my wife and I have an argument. That would never happen. So you all know. But let's say my wife and I have an argument and 
Uh, it was about something silly, about putting the dishes away, because that would never happen either. Um, but uh, we have an argument about putting the dishes away, and my wife sits down at the table, and she, there's a sink full of dishes, and she says, man, I really wish someone would put those dishes away. What do we call that? Passive-aggressive, right? Wishful thinking? In our house, that may be true. I'm the one who needs to put them away, not my wife. Uh, but if she looks at me and she says, Rob, would you put the dishes away, please? It's a little bit different, right? It's, a, it's more direct. I get it. You know, the passive-aggressive approach, my wife is learning. I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box, and so I don't always pick up on these things. Okay? Uh, so the passive-aggressive approach doesn't often work for me. Be direct. And so Jesus... He's not being a passive-aggressive here. He's, he's shifted to be very direct to the scribes and the Pharisees. He turns to them, and he says what uh, John MacArthur references this, these words as the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus ever uttered on earth. These are the things that he says. Look at verse 13 and 15 again. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The word woe here is kind of an exclamation of of grief, of distress, or I think most appropriately of criticism. I mean, look at what Jesus says to them. You shut the door of heaven in people's faces? That's certainly a criticism, isn't it? Now, when I read these verses originally, I had this idea of, and you've seen this before, this idea of a donkey being led by a carrot on a string. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, And he never quite reaches it. And it keeps them going to get this donkey to move, to keep walking. But they never quite reach that carrot. They never quite get the prize at the end. And so when I read these verses, I have this in mind. And I think that the, the, the carrot in my mind, represented the joyful obedience to the law that the Jews wanted. They wanted to know how to please God. The carrot was obedience, joyful obedience to the law. The Pharisees are the person holding the carrot, and the Jews are the donkey. They wanted to know and to do the right thing according to Scripture, but the Pharisees, in their hypocrisy, always kept a right relationship with God just out of arm's reach. Do this, and then God will love you. Don't do this or that, or else God won't love you. And it was this carrot that was constantly being dangled in front of the Jews. Now, I think it's pretty clear here, though, that Jesus condemns them for this. He says, no, you don't have to do all of those things to have a right relationship with God. It's not about how spiritual you look. Remember, they wanted their prayers to be long and to be heard. They wanted every 
coin they put in the offering to be seen. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way. That's not what I'm asking of you. He says, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What a statement. What a condemnation on them. But this is what they were doing. They were keeping people out of heaven. And they were very sincere in doing it, weren't they? They thought they were sharing the words of God. Verse 15 says that the Pharisees were going to great lengths to spread this message that they believed in. It says travel across land and sea. They were going, they were putting out a lot of effort, guys. They were sweating a lot of drops of sweat here. But they were actually hindering people's salvation. Think about that for just a second. All of their effort, when it was placed in the wrong thing, actually hindered people's salvation. So I, I have to ask, we have to turn this and evaluate our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, could this be true of us? Could this be true of me? Could we be guilty of hindering someone's salvation? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand. God is sovereign over all, including salvation. There's nothing that Rod Omis can do to keep someone from heaven if God has called them. Okay? But think about this. If someone has an incorrect understanding of God, of who he, who he is, what his character is like, they're going to probably misunderstand salvation and unfortunately probably miss out on it altogether. So what we know and understand and think about God is vital here. If a person thinks, and we know this, you've talked with people that you care about and their view of God is, is skewed in some way. Um, if, if someone has this view of God that he's just this great, this grandfather with a big beard rocking away in a, in a rocking chair in heaven, um, you know, kind of unaffected by people's actions who are, who's just going to forgive everybody in the end anyway, then you're going to live your life with the idea that it doesn't really matter and that, you know, whether I trust in Jesus or whether I don't, whether I live a life that honors God or whether I don't, It doesn't really matter because he's going to forgive me in the end anyway. And so if your view of God maybe is the opposite of that, it's not this uncaring great-grandfather with a big beard. Maybe it's that God is this fierce judge who doesn't let anything go, who always punishes you for every sin, then that also changes how a person lives their life, doesn't it? Because they're going to say, well, I mess up every day. And if I can't atone for it, if I can't make up for it, if I can't somehow have this relieved from me, then why even try to be good? Then why even try to live for the Lord? Our view of God and what we understand about Him affects us. So we have to ask our questions, what do we believe about God? As a church, I think we need to ask this question, how do we speak about God? What, what kind of words do we say? What's the impression that we give to people? Because if we perpetuate phrases like, they sound good on the surface, but things like saying, well, just trust in Jesus and all will go well for you, we're not giving the complete picture of what it means to be a disciple, are we? And yet this is the message that too many people hear from churches. So church, how do we speak 
about God. Because trust in Jesus and everything will go well for you is not the gospel. It's not. It's just a way of getting Jesus to do what you want. Of using Jesus to get what you want. And it doesn't work. It's not truth. But it's also not the gospel to say, follow this list of rules perfectly in this particular way, and then God will have mercy on you and love you. That's not the gospel either. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus condemned them for it. They were making people, as Jesus says, twice a child of hell by spreading a false image of God. Christians, what we say about God and how we live our lives in relation to Him speaks loudly. It is sometimes more loud than our actual words. Does how we live turn people off to a relationship with God? God is not dangling salvation in front of people like a carrot, holding it just out of their reach until they do things the right way or doesn't, He's not trying to keep them striving and working. Brothers and sisters, salvation is a free gift. It is a gift that God offers anyone and everyone who believes. It doesn't matter if you have a million dollars in the bank or you owe money to someone. God offers it as a free gift for everyone who believes. It's not about how hard you work or how long you work or strive for the carrot. Because God already took the carrot off the rope and offers it, offers it, it to you right now, today. He offers salvation right now, today. Today is the day of salvation. And this is how our belief and understanding of God is transformed. When we forget the struggle, when we give it up, and we turn to Him as our only source of salvation, our only source of hope, our only ability to be right in God's sight is because Jesus died in your place. And when you trust in that, your work is done. There is nothing to be done from that point. And so the question that we have to also ask is, are we willing to quit struggling? Are we willing to take God at His word and believe Jesus' sacrifice is true for you, for me? Church, we're commanded not suggested, we're commanded to go make disciples. But who are we making disciples of? Jesus or us? Of our view of religion, of our view of how church should work or we think church should work. The Pharisees were much more intent on spreading their ideas about faith and religion than actually preserving the truth. Are you? Only the Lord draws people to faith into the kingdom. Only God does that, brothers and sisters. But let's be sure that we are consistently calling people to Him, not to us or our ideas about religion and how it should work. Now, if you kind of look forward to verse 16 through 23, these are all, this, this section is all about swearing oaths. We're going to move through it pretty quick, but it's about swearing oaths. Um, I'm a, I'm a product of the 90s. I grew up in the 90s. Uh, my teenage years were spent there. And so we watched a movie often. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called The Princess Bride. Um, 
we we introduced that movie to our older kids last week, and I don't think they got it. <laughs> um, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But uh, there's a scene in there that, that stuck out to them. And it was the scene, if you remember, the man in the mask climbs up the cliff following the giant who's holding the other people. And they get to the top, and the Spaniard is left to beat the man in the mask at a sword fight. Well, he can't get up quickly because they cut the rope. And so he's climbing this cliff, and the guy looks over and he says, Hey, do you think you could speed this up? And he says, well, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. You, if you've seen the movie, you know. So eventually he, he says, well, what if I threw you a rope? And the man in the mask said, I don't know how I can trust you. And the Spaniard says, um, he says, I wrote this down. I listened to the movie again just to, to get it right. Um, but he says, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, that you will reach the top alive. Right? He says, I swear on the soul of my father. Okay? And when we, when we heard this, um, I could see my six-year-old daughter's ears kind of turn up. Because in our house, uh, I try to make it very clear that you don't need to swear about anything. Let your yes, what were you going to say? Right. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. In fact, uh, that comes from scripture, James chapter 5 verse 12. He says that very thing. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in chapter 5, he taught, he, there's a whole section about swearing and oaths and that sort of a thing. And so I want to look at that. Just so if you're in Matthew, just flip back to chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. No one swears on their father's soul here. But Jesus gives some instruction, Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Um, we may not swear on our father's soul, but uh, if you were young once, um, you may have said, I cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye, right? Um, we had our own ways of swearing, oaths, I guess. Um, but Jesus is, I mean, he, he takes issue with this. He says, you don't need to do this. In fact, it's, it's, it's a bad idea to do this. James reiterates that, as I mentioned. But in the Pharisees' standard form, this is what they were doing. They were making a point in chapter 23 of delineating between oaths made by the temple and those made by the gold of the temple, oaths made by the altar and those made by the gift on the altar, so do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on? The Pharisees were elevating superficial things and forgetting the deeper truths of the law. They were making mountains out of molehills. Have you heard that phrase before? They were elevating superficial things and forgetting the deeper things of the law. And they were doing this 
to squirm out of their difficult responsibilities. Um, our brother Mike Caps preached back in June on uh, the text, and he was he taught us about Corbin. Do you guys remember that that week we we learned about what Corbin was? And so Mike showed us that the Pharisees were instructed by Moses in Exodus twenty twelve to honor their father and their mother. Easy enough, right? But here we see that they're negating those commands by teaching that they could give money to the temple in lieu of helping their parents when they needed them. Well, guess where the money given to the temple ends up going? Back to them. And so they were abusing the system and teaching falsehood to get out of their responsibilities. Whatever money might have been used to provide for aging parents could be dedicated to the temple treasury instead and saying that it was Corbin would then exempt a person from his responsibilities to his parents. And Jesus condemns that there too. Don't do this, he says. And in other words, the Pharisees took a legitimate offering that God designed for good and used it in illegitimate and devious ways to squirm out of their responsibilities and in the end defraud their very own parents and just enrich themselves. This is how they were splitting hairs in matters of the law to use it for their own gain. Because they didn't really care about the truth. They didn't really care about the people that they were teaching these things to. And so it's God says that they were blind. They were blind. Now look, Jesus calls out the religious leaders for shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces. He's calling them out for doing that. Um, He's blasting the Pharisees and the scribes for entrapping people in this, this twisted and faulty religious system. And He's condemning them for splitting hairs in oaths in order to benefit themselves. So let me make a distinction as we kind of wind this down. Let me make a distinction right here to avoid any confusion. I'm not saying that getting the specifics of biblical doctrine right is the same thing as splitting of hairs like the Pharisees were doing here. We ought to be students of the Word, shouldn't we? We should know how to rightly divide the truth. But the Pharisees were interested in the truth. They just wanted to find or even create a way to do less, but boy, to look good and to look spiritual doing it. They nitpicked and argued about which oaths were binding and which were not and totally ignored the significance of God's instruction and God's holiness. Now, this may not seem applicable to you and to me today, but here's one of the greatest dangers when it comes to being a Pharisee. One of the greatest dangers of Phariseeism is that it's contagious. It's contagious. You guys know what contagious means. It's easily transmitted from one person to another. When we disconnect our heart from our head, Suddenly putting our confidence in our own flesh, we actually lead other people away from the truth. When Pharisees make disciples, they breed children of hell, not sons and daughters of grace. 
Are the people following you amazed by grace? Ask yourself this question. Are the people following you amazed by grace? Or do they get the idea that following Jesus is just little more than completing a list of do's and don'ts? Does our influence in people's lives widen their eyes and their hearts to the wonder of God's grace? That God would save any of us? Much less me, a sinner? I, I pray that my life demonstrates God's redeeming grace, not a rigid adherence to a bunch of man-made rules. Brothers and sisters, that's not what our world needs. Our world does not need good Christians who follow all these rules that we think we need to follow. The world needs disciples of Jesus who go to the places that need him. I was just thinking in our Sunday school class this morning, um, if... If we can go a whole week and never hear a cuss word out of another non, another person, someone who's a non-Christian, maybe we need to spend a little more time with non-Christians. I realize that that's jarring to us a lot of times to hear that kind of language. I mean, if, if, if we're not rubbing shoulders with that kind of person, what are we doing? Where are we at? What is our relationship with Christ like? It's not a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what the world wants. That's certainly not what they need. They need sold out people for Jesus Christ. Our lives demonstrating God's grace. My desire for our church is that we're people who are just so blown away by the grace of God that we don't, we can't help but that pour out into others. We can't, not that we would want to, but we can't even help it that it drips off of us into our relationships with other people, that we recognize His grace to us and we then give it away freely. Brothers and sisters, when our eyes are off of ourselves, when they're fixed off of ourselves, we're going to see more and more clearly who Jesus is and why He is so worthy of our devotion, why He is so worthy of our affection. You can't do this if you're focused on yourself, though. You can't do this if you're focused on your problems. May we not pass on a wrong view of what a relationship with God looks like. I recognize that we won't get that perfect every time. Um, God's grace abounds. But instead of passing on a wrong view of what God, a relationship with God looks like, Let's, as I mentioned, let's shift our eyes from ourselves and the things of this world back to the Savior, back to the one who's redeemed us, who's called us, who's covered us with his blood. That's the message that the world needs. Not people who follow a list of rules, but people who love God and love them. When we speak about God and who God is, May we do so with biblically informed language and with hearts that desire real truth and then with lifestyles that live it out. That's my prayer for myself, for my family, for our church, that we be so in love with God that our lives just draw people to him. Not to us. We're not called to make disciples of, of, each, of each other. We're called to make disciples of Jesus. And so as we think back on this text today, 
we have to evaluate again what stings here. Inevitably, there's some sting that's happened this morning in your heart. And I pray that it is the Spirit of God moving. Because I know He's moved in my heart this week as we've studied this and as I prepared. Brothers and sisters, it's not easy to admit where you're being a hypocrite, where you're being a Pharisee, but you have to. And I have to in order to have a right understanding of who God is. And when we see that happen, when we initiate that, or when the Spirit initiates that change and we join in that process, and that's where these walls are going to explode. We, we won't have a building big enough because people aren't coming for our list of rules. They're coming to see Jesus. Let's pray. God, our desire is just that. This church could burn down and your message hasn't changed a bit. Lord, um, you may choose to use us in ways we've never ever thought of, but you've not changed, Lord. I pray as we look inward a bit and reflect here, God, that you would help us by your Spirit identify inconsistencies in our lifestyle. Lord, it may be where we just at work allow ourselves to say certain things or look at certain things or whatever it might be. And then when we come home or go to church, we hide that. Lord, um, be with us in that inconsistency. Lord, just the distance between my heart and my mouth is enough for hypocrisy to run wild. So Lord, I pray that you would help me, help us. Lord, guard us from the same fate as these Pharisees. Lord, we do not want to shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. We want to fling it open wide and help them walk through, help them see Jesus. So Lord, as we go out and as we live our lives this week, in our jobs, in our homes, wherever it might be, watching a basketball game, Lord, that the way that we say we believe is how we actually live each day. God, give us grace when we stumble and fall. Pick us up. Remind us of your great and unending love for us, Lord. And give us more and more the mind of Christ. Make us into images of Jesus more and more. We ask it in his name. Amen.